0: Welcome to Choreographing the City, morning conversations part of the artistic residency of choreographer and Teatro Mundi fellow Dr. Adesola Akinley, hosted by Professor Gediminas Urbonas at MIT's Art, Culture, and Technology program and supported by MIT Center for Art, Science, and Technology. Akinley's residency explores emerging lexicons across dance making and city making through choreographing the city. In this podcast, Akinley and Urbonas are joined by guests in a series of eight morning conversations. Join us in this third episode as we discuss resistance, silence, infrastructure and double-barreled aspirations with Professor Richard Sennett, Senior Advisor of the United Nations on its Programme on Climate Change and Cities, Senior Fellow at the Center on Capitalism and Society at Columbia University, and Visiting Professor of Urban Studies at DOSP MIT, and of course, co-founder of Teatrum Mundi. (laughs)
1: since last week, I thought what I'd do is um, read to you something rather personal that comes out of my time working with uh, dancers. The big frame for this is that from the work I was doing when I was in uh, the dance world, there was a real question about how to square the circle between political engagement an artistic experiment. And so I want to lay that out for you in a very concrete way, and then show you what the problem looks like. And it actually relates to the issue of silence, which Adashola and I are both obsessed with. So in this first part, I just tell you a little about how I came to be involved in this. I trained as a cellist at Juilliard, and at a certain point I quit because I felt that being classical cellist, although wonderful as it was, that it wasn't fulfilling something innovative in what I wanted to do. And I moved out of the Juilliard orbit to live downtown where there was a flourishing dance and experimental music scene in the 1960s. And in my new surroundings, I tried out a way of art making by working as a sound artist for a group of avant-garde choreographers. I have to say, a loss of status marked this move uptown. I had been a quite arrogant little hotshot. and downtown, I was taking orders and spent most of my time splicing and gluing together tapes of electronically generated sounds or recorded noise. Now, what I wanted to do was get kind of closer to the world of everyday life, but this realm was in a way as far removed from everyday life as well as the conservatory hothouse. Few naked people could be observed on the streets of lower Manhattan, jigging to the recorded sound of a power station generator. But thanks to us, You might see and hear people prowling the stage of the Judson Theater in just this way. The intention, though, was to create and construct a radical link between stage and street with the emphasis on radical, both sides becoming liberated by interacting. If you don't know Washington Square, well, if you do know it, it looked nothing like it was then. It really looked horrible. It's all gentrified now, but then its lawns were denuded of grass, its unintended ornamental shrubs with its stringy and droopy, but it had the right urban bones for bohemian myth. Young persons playing guitars lounged around its central circular fountain, drunk and drug addicted persons slept on side benches to the north, a uh, shady side of this 10 acre park. And elderly persons kept to certain benches on the, south, on the west side where they gossiped dawn to dust. Now, what happened in this scene was that on the south side was also a church called Judson Church, which was an architectural copy of the small town churches from which most of its Italian parishioners originally came. In 1957, it opened its doors to people who were not Italian. And this was the year when Howard Moody, a leading voice in the civil rights movement, became its pastor. Judson's engagement with the arts began five years later when Al Carmines, my friend, joined Moody. He was a fearsomely educated priest and he was also a composer and a lyricist. And the conjunction of these two was to mean that the pursuit of the big politics of that time, which was civil rights, particularly for blacks, and the creation of a new dance milieu intersected. The collection of dancers L. Carmines gathered was influenced by the choreographer Merce Cunningham and musician John Cage, who had a studio further to the west in Greenwich Village. The Judson Dance Theater from 1962 to 1964 rehearsed in Judson's robing and youth fellowship rooms, performed in the aisles of the church and tried to spill out occasionally to co-opt the space of Washington Square. So there was this relation between urban space and what they were doing inside. They wanted to bring the square into the dance studio. Now I'll tell you a little more about this. Cunningham and Cage had in the 1950s broken the mold of fixed performances, emphasizing instead improvisation, just as did uh, bebop musicians uptown in Harlem. The choreographers at Judson, who followed in Cunningham's path, wanted to make use of everyday untutored movements like walking or tripping and of everyday sounds to connect literally to the public. Yvonne Rainer taught works like TRIO and A to anyone who wanted to dance it, whether a trained dancer or not, using step sequences which could be mastered in a short time. And provoked by Yvonne, Trisha Brown sought to make precise the idea of what she called democratic dance. She worked out a technique in which the moving body follows the path of least resistance in jumping. Uh, No astounding difficult leaps, or turning, slowly rather than twirling, or rapidly, or falling, for real, painfully, rather than sinking down gracefully. The Jutsun dancers also sought to engage dancing bodies in urban space. This is where I came in, along with a young woman who was a whiz with tape machines. We recorded the wailings of sirens, honking traffic jams, the dripping of, of leaves in Washington Square during rain, along with the electric generator station, all as music to dance to. Uh, I have to say that aesthetically, the rhythms of these noises intrigue me, and they still do. Uh, one traffic jam honked, for instance, in a regular seven pulse, which is a very complicated, beat grueling to pull off in the concert hall, but for some inexplicable reason, performed fairly actively by angry motorists in the street. Socially, the Judson artists aim to bring in the audience's active participant. Rayner loathed that sort of Broadway theater in which the star mesmerizes an adoring, submissive audience. Politically, as I say, 1963, Mark, the year in which you could hear Judson dancers using the word liberation in a double-barreled sense. Liberation from the conventions which ruled belay, but also liberation of the bodies of people whose life work was not dancing. Carmines urged them to see themselves in this double-barreled way. We are dancing in the same place where Howard Moody organizes protests against racial justice. It's one and the same project. And here, and this is why I tell you about all of this, a very large difficulty arose. Innovations in the art raised a barrier to making the double barrel connection. Tricia Brown, uh, whilst the proponent of democratic dance, uh, believing that even the old people in the park could execute its movements, nonetheless raised the barrier. Using the city as a stage, she placed dancers on the top of separate tenement buildings where they performed with one another by sending something like body bodily smoke signals across the roof. When I bend forward, you arch backward. These dance moves were nothing like the ways repairmen puttered or tenants exercised up there. The dances sometimes occurred at the roof edge, which only a skilled dancer could manage without suffering catastrophically from vertical. So too, Brown's initial efforts to craft movements anybody could make morphed into experiments which disoriented even the professionally trained body. For instance, Trish fitted dancers with harnesses so that they could walk-up walls to dance, their legs free of gravity, but deprived of the security of placement on solid ground. Rather than expressing everyday movement, this experiment explored how far it could be subverted. There thus arose a contradiction between the desire for social inclusion and the poesis of inventing expressive forms. If you are pedantically minded, you might say that, therefore, something is wrong about the double-barreled aspiration. It has to be one or the other. But in love we inhabit our contradictions, stimulate us, and so too in art. At Jatza, no one was going to give up the double-barreled aspiration just because they feared being caught in a contradiction. So that's where we were. That's the circle we weren't willing to square in, in this, what has now become an iconic scene, subject of an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. I saw a picture of, my, of myself there, and I'm looking at the camera like, what are you photographing? And it's a very strange experience because we didn't think of ourselves as doing something significant. Uh, we thought that the civil rights thing was significant and we were learning from it.
2: Richard, does it lead to a question about what is dance for? Like, what is its purpose in terms of communication? Is it about an aesthetic communication or is it about an inner communication?
1: Uh, I don't think in... uh, For the people I worked with when I was doing this, they'd ever make that distinction. That is the whole notion was that this was, you could see what liberation looks like and you could participate in it. And it was also a new way of making art, you know? But it had that very specific focus in this one place, which happened to have this civil rights leader and this amazing artistic uh, maven really played a, a bit thinking that, that what they did was completely seamless. Now we would do that. We would say that, uh, and which is, I think, terrible. The notion is that when you develop as an artist, you withdraw in some way from participation with the public. And I've seen that a lot with people I know who are very gifted dancers who will, if you like, dance down when they're uh, dancing in, in, when they're dancing in a more political way. And that's, that's to me, wrong. That what we don't want to do is dance down or talk down, uh, explain, we want to include, you know? And it's good for us as artists to do that.
2: We we spoke to Diane McIntyre last, um discussion as well who was who was talking a little bit about that era but she was in Harlem so it's nice that you were saying you know you you had gone up there as well but part of what we've come across and we've talked about before with the idea of choreographing the city is also about how you support a, a sort of somatic understanding of or a somatic engagement with people whether they be dancers or not and that maybe dance can help uncover the the possibility of that. It sounds like part of what you're saying is it can uncover the possibility, but at a certain point it masks the ability of people to create their own somatic language and imposes one.
1: It's a it's not a, I don't like the word contradiction. It's a conflict. And attempting to solve it is I think that, you know, it should be left as a raw, as a raw problem, rather than saying there's a kind of solution, certainly not an ideological solution to this. And it's true with a lot of art making, you know, the things that we can't resolve are the things that are most alive in the art we make. It's true in writing too. Uh, If I may say as my later and lesser life as a professor, I always thought the least interesting dissertations I read were the ones that nailed everything down, whereas the ones with rough edges were the ones where somebody was, you know, they were present, they were alive, you know. If we could just skip to make a little aside about that. It's why I always said to my students, don't have a chapter on methodology and a bibliography. Hide that. What you don't want to do is, you don't want to iron out the the experience of incompleteness and, and contradiction, I, th- I think. The,
3: the comment you made about the way the gestures, once the work was developing, kind of moved away from the, yeah. well, that's what I heard, the source. It made me think of, um, I remember reading a piece by Ruskin, surprisingly maybe, um, uh-huh. He was talking about um making a sketch in the field a pencil sketch and then trying to convert that into a painting in the studio
1: Uh
3: and how um often um what happened was that he he found out more about the sketch and how the sketch contained so much information about the curve of the bow of a tree right because it wasn't possible to reproduce it in the studio he was But it was a process of discovery, discovery of the encounter with the tree and the quality of that encounter that had been captured in the line. I just wondered if there was any connection there between those kind of those gestures and the the first sort of evolution of the work and then moving away from that.
1: When we draw we're always engaged in a physical movement in which resistance really matters you know and when we encounter resistance, we're thinking more about our physical movement. Uh, we're more self-conscious about what we're doing with that. This is a thing for all musicians that, that is of the utmost importance. If you can master, for instance, a, a two-octave scale right away, you're not listening to it. But if you're having that little trouble, you know, shifting from the third finger to the first finger up, up the string, you're much more cognizant about how a scale ascends. You just have to work at it. And it's, it's a fundamental principle of all craft work. Mastery is, 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 of a certain sort is a very bad thing for creativity. It has to be something that is worked at. I mean, this also goes into things like smart cities. A smart city, which is instantly usable, is a dumb city. You're not thinking about it, you know? So I think there's an element, and certainly there's an element in, for the these elderly people who came in off the street, of struggling to perform to mimic duet, because, you know, I mean, enfin, it's, you know, they're, they're pretty sophisticated dances, which made it more meaningful to them. But I think for urbanists, there's a big lesson to be learned in that, that uh, if you make a user-friendly environment, you dulled people's wits. You know, it's something that has to come, it has to come as an experience where you've put yourself into something, you've had trouble doing it, like drawing, you've encountered resistance, you're thinking, it's a much deeper experience. This is a challenge to recover making art this way, because everything pushes you towards being in control. And that's not how you develop a complex art. It's, it's a dialectic between struggle and losing control and then, and then finding a way to do it. I mean, I despair in, when I've taught architecture, when people say, "What is the solution to this problem? you know a design problem?" this is a way that ensures that the solution is going to be fairly trivial because it's coherent. you can demonstrate it how well it works, and so on you're not looking your problems solving, but you 're not problem finding and that 's I think what for the Judson dancers that. That was what happened to them, as they got to be more and more masterful dancers. They were always exploring problems. And the solution, sometimes they abandoned them. The back arch, for instance, was something that I know from watching her do it, that Trish experimented with for years, that, that almost semi-curved back arch. Is a result of a lot of sometimes rather dangerous experiments. So that's why I think it's so good you're doing a class like this. But you want to learn, you you want, you want to learn where the difficulties are in making this thing about making space with your body. Not simply what an illustration of uh, you, want, you want to find out where it's difficult to. Uh, to move around experiential trial and error and until you have experiments you don't have anything that looks trial and error you don't have anything that looks like art you don't you don't have choreography you have movement control which is a very different and as you say very capitalist operation it's also a very political operation But it's precisely refusing the center of what we do as artists, which is to see what things would be like by trying out different alternatives, you know? For us, we would have never accepted the notion that there's something called high art and low art. And that's because we were in a very particular moment, in a very particular place. Uh, we were involved in this, you know, racial struggles, dancing, making art, and they seem seamless to us. And because of that, I'm responding to something I actually haven't said, I realize. It's often said that popular art is more political art than is high art. And that I think is absolutely wrong. And the aspiration to make something that is complex, that is inclusive, is something that our generation had and I think it has been lost by making that distinction. And it's contradictory. That's what I'm saying. You can't resolve it. Well, you could resolve it by thinking in that way that popular art is more political. But I think that's giving the game away of saying that the people are incapable of, uh, you know, of participating in serious art. I'm reminded, the 12-tone composer Arnold Schoenberg once said, you know, in 100 years, people are going to be humming my tunes. And he said that because he was a member of the Communist Party at that time. He was also, in, you know, dealing with the 12-tone system. It was an aspiration. And it's an aspiration that's disappeared with another idea of politics, you know? Which is that politics is about popular expression, which is dumped down. And I, I just think we have, to, we have to resist that. I think Trish was a better dancer for harboring that. I, I hope a better writer for believing that you can write out rather than write down whatever my gifts are as a writer, have been de- developed by that same aspiration.
4: Maybe I would like you know, to share the comments, Richard, because uh, this uh, discussion, especially what you brought about dialectic, which kind of like also resonates to something what is called interrogative design. The movements going forth and back at the same time. Movement the checking on itself. You know? this, is, this is what uh, to, to my understanding creates this uh, Concept of the choreography and uh, and that kind of like resonates also with Raymond Williams' uh, idea of structures of feelings, yeah. uh, which is uh, really uh, which kind of like really uh, helps us maybe to think uh, of how to uh, not to get into these traps of uh, habits of thought, uh, how not to get into traps of convention. Uh, perhaps you know this is what you were uh, what you were. Uh, alluding to when you were uh, saying that the aesthetic and political movement especially in these examples uh, of the 70s trisha brown uh, you know and what you were doing uh, and and perhaps also what uh, what Adeshala is 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 doing now right you know it tries to sort of like connect uh, the political and aesthetic projects together right you know where uh, with the political project, the urgency of the political project is, uh, is somehow the, the focus of it.
1: Right. So where do you go with that?
4: Well, uh, I think uh, what, what I find uh, really in the structures of feelings uh, is precisely the urgency of finding the new language uh, in, the, in the environment, in the context, especially when it comes to urban planning you know, when it comes to this uh, highly techno-bureaucratic I- infrastructural environment, right, that is saturated by the techno-bureaucracy, the language that, uh, the language and environment that doesn't give us any space for imagination. I think, uh, I think we need a new type of infrastructure within that context. And I think uh, wh- what what I see in this opportunity, thinking of choreographic f- force that we can sort of like create an, uh, well, Adeshola uses beautiful uh, beautiful saying or beautiful language, you know, when she speaks about the score, right? You know, so I believe that in this uh, possibility with the score, we can create new infrastructure. You know, new infrastructure that's, you know, along uh, maybe with uh, electricity, gas, you know, water and sewage, you know, we we should consider other type of infrastructure.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you want to, do you have the last word, Adeshawa?
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for talking and, and being here in the conversation. I think that what we're looking at, and, and we have sort of touched on this, uh, the idea of infrastructure, it seems to keep coming back about how, how we hang, where we hang the ideas that fall between things. Is just something I think is always ongoing with sort of talking Absolutely. about this in in betweenness and how we don't in our language or in our thinking, Western thinking, start to fix in between as a thing instead of allowing it as you said to be a, a sense of um, emptiness. But as you also have said, there being different kinds of emptiness or different kinds of silence, like the one that is the silence of presence and the silence of absence and sort of living in this in-betweenness is, is the task. I I think so. Me too. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me and I wish you all well.
0: This podcast is possible thanks to the support of the Center for Art, Science and Technology at MIT and the Art, Culture and Technology Program, and is done in collaboration with Teatro Mundi. If you want to know more about the class, the program, and or the artists, follow us on Instagram at choreographingthecity__mit or follow the links provided in your podcast platform. Thank you very much for listening.